Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 10 for 2022. Today I'm joined by a well-known property economist, urban geographer and sociologist. Matt Gross heads up one of Australia's most respected property research houses that has grown on the back of honesty, integrity and innovation. Matt is highly regarded as being able to provide both that strategic direction and tactical strategies to ensure that project values, both social and economic, are maximised. He has been involved in providing insight into some of the country's biggest property transactions and largest residential developments. He established the National Property Research Company back in 1999 as the sole research division for Heron Todd White in Brisbane. In 2001, the business had expanded outside of the Heron Todd White banner and it's grown a number of corporate clients in that time. They provide all, all sorts of research and oversight, advice to clients, and his comments are often sought by various media sources to provide insights on the property industry and he's a fellow of UDIA. Thanks so much for joining me today, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for joining me and, and uh, agreeing to be on the podcast and chat about economic and, and housing affordability. You're the first economist I've had on the podcast. Can you believe that? I can't actually, because there is just so much to talk about in that space. It's so critical right now. I know, I know. So I, I um I do apologise because we've sort of had 18 episodes last season and this is number 10 of this season. So I am a bit flawed that I've managed to sort of get this far without speaking to someone like you. And But I'm just so pleased that I could pin you down and, and have this conversation today because I think now um, out of any time, you know, is so critical to really understand our economy. I think everyone keeps saying this is unprecedented, you know, and and you and I were chatting before, you know, I've been wait, waiting to buy a house for, for some time and I'm, I'm sort of waiting for the next cycle. But it just feels like um, to me as a as sort of a, a planner and a, a layperson from an economy perspective that, you know, I don't know what's coming. So I'm hoping you can shed some light and educate uh, me and, and the listeners today about where we're at. And the first question I want to ask you about was the, the you know, the housing affordability crisis that people are talking about and that we're experiencing here, particularly in southeast Queensland. And I'm wondering what what are your views on that housing of unaffordability and what will lead southeast Queensland out of this current state? It's really horrible, isn't it? When you look at the affordability issues as they stand at this point in time, you know, our first home buyers are a diminishing part of the market. Our ratios of um, house value to incomes, you know, it used to be around three to four. It's now approaching six to seven. So for a young person to get into the market, it's a really, really tough time. And the affordability problems that we look at 
unfortunately tend to get resolved to the point of supply and demand, which is not actually, I think, a fair representation of the complexity of what the problem is. You know, if we think about um, supply and demand, yes, that is certainly an issue. And you'd have to say in this cycle, we probably did get caught with our pants down a little bit in southeast Queensland. Um, we weren't expecting the enormous growth in interstate migration that we've had. Um, you know, international migration to Queensland has always been a relatively small part of how we have grown. Um, but the last two years has really seen um, quite phenomenal growth in that interstate migration. And, and that has probably been the strongest it has been for the past probably 10 to 15 years. Now, if we look back at you know, the historical nature of, of affordability and when things sort of really turned around, um, uh, we hit in, in 2000 when we introduced the GST, we didn't really have affordability problems then, but we did have a really significant growth in terms of interstate migration. And, and again, we kind of get, got caught with our pants down and being able to deliver um, land and product into the marketplace quickly to meet that. And that sort of tapered off at about 2003 and we had affordability problems then. And in 2005 to 2007, the same sort of thing occurred and then we hit the GFC. So post-GFC, interstate migration for southeast Queensland really hadn't been that strong and prices really were fairly stable. Um, we didn't get the growth that sort of we did in, in New South Wales or Victoria for that matter. So one of the key drivers in, in if, if we're just talking supply and demand at the moment is we know through historical trends that when Sydney's house price is approximately twice the value of what it is here in Brisbane, the interstate migration really takes off. And we're in that cycle right now, you know. Admittedly, we're not twice as much now, but we were in that sort of 2019 period before we had that really strong growth now. Um, so we have seen, uh, I guess, what we maybe could have known was coming. We really didn't have the, the planning in place or the supply in place to be able to deal with that quickly. But if we take the, the economy as it was in 2019, um, there's no reason why anyone would have spent a lot of money trying to get approvals in place and all the rest of it. You know, we were in a very toxic environment in terms of a, a federal election. We had an economy that was slowing. Um, so interest rates were starting to fall anyway. So affordability at that point in time wasn't too bad in southeast Queensland. Um, now, the supply side of things at the moment, how we got caught short has meant that you know, with the population growth that we've had, um, which we'll go back to, we'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of the pandemic and how some of those trends have changed in terms of people staying in a location and not moving where previously they had. So that's kind of distorted the data a little bit. But the affordability problem that I think that we're really experiencing now is not just supply and demand. I think the affordability problem we're experiencing is that house prices have escalated so significantly that we've actually seen a redistribution of wealth. And that redistribution of wealth is happening in fewer and fewer hands. And those people that were in the market realistically for the last four to five years, maybe even decade, have seen an enormous amount of um, growth in terms of equity. And our systems in terms of getting into property have become so efficient 
that and the banks have become so effective at selling finance that they're likely to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you've got this much equity, you should buy an investment property, which brings us back to the taxation system that says, you know what, um, if I'm a, a, even a middle income earner and I have good equity, for me to go and buy another house um, or an apartment for that matter gives me the taxation benefits that work in my favour. Um, so that aspect of the system is broken. Um, and we really need to give consideration to how we do that down the track. The problem we've got with affordability too is that we've also thrown a hell of a lot of stimulus into the marketplace. Um, and we do that when things get bad, but our stimulus is actually delivered, I think, in potentially the wrong way. Um, we tend to go first home buyers, we'll give you 20,000 and that's not working enough, so we'll give you $30,000. And all that kind of does is put 20 to $30,000 additional price on the end, you know, it, it, the prices don't stay stable. It just, it pump primes it. So I think if we were looking at what would be a better solution in that respect, we would be better off giving our first home buyers an incentive that says, if you go and buy a home, that 20 or $30,000, whatever the number works out to be, um, you know, you can claim the interest component of your principal and interest payment on your tax. And that way, you're not actually pump priming the market because their borrowing capacity is reduced to what it is. You haven't added another twenty to thirty thousand dollars or whatever to their borrowing capacity. Their borrowing capacity remains as it is, so the stimulus is not there. Um, you'd also have to say that the government has probably been negligent in their supply of housing into the marketplace. In May 2020, we wrote an article that sort of discussed the need for. Um, how stimulus was delivered and we already knew that the the recovery was well underway at this time in the pandemic you know what we thought might have been growth that was relatively um benign in terms of people on websites looking at you know this is where i'd like to live and all the rest of it actually transpired into people committing so they, they were actually going out there and buying so the demand was really strong when our industry bodies went, you know what, we need to support housing and we need to we need to put more money in there. And we, we then had the stimulus in terms of the, the home buyers grant or the home builders grant, I should say. The logical for us at that point in time, what we were suggesting was. If government went and built the housing instead of the private sector building the housing, what that would do, it would still keep our building industry busy. Um, because you know, if the houses are being built, it doesn't matter if it's the private sector or the public sector that are building it, the construction still needs to take place. Mm. Um, and that wouldn't have probably uh, pumped up the prices so much. But what that would have done, it probably, in terms of delivery, if you think about May 2020, two years down the track, there would have been a lot of housing that had been delivered to the market, be that in high-rise form, medium-rise or you know, general housing that would have taken a lot of pressure off the rental market as we yeah. see it right now. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting thing was that even though prices would have probably still escalated, the government's purse by default would have grown. So even if you assumed a, a fairly benign growth rate over the last two years of say 30 or 35%, the government's asset base in housing would have grown by 30 to 35%. And when we didn't need that housing, they could sell that housing back into the community and churn that money with a 30 to 35% profit to be used for other parts of the economy. So I think that there are 
when you think about supply and demand in terms of what are the problems with affordability, it is so much more complex than we only have this amount of land and we have these amount of buyers. It is such a, a challenging space to operate in. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And it's it's it just seems like, yeah, some of those solutions. And, and I mean, I mean, I wonder whether hindsight is giving us this. But, you know, I, I remember back when we were sort of having these discussions a couple of years ago that, you know, there were cer- certainly these options on the table at that time. But, you know, I, I think people just didn't know the effect that COVID would have and, and really this this kind of, you know, the impact that that has had around trends of where people are moving and, and where they're living. It has really been interesting and put pressure more so on areas that maybe weren't envisaged by the government. So I'm keen to understand, though, with the the federal election coming up, you know, it, it's sort of there's there's been some interesting announcements and some interesting kind of um, policy put forward. But what do you think are the impacts on that economic outlook and particularly on that the housing market with this upcoming election? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? When you This is a, an election that is probably a little cleaner than what it was last time round, but um, we still haven't resolved the problems. So if you... I mean... Albanese or, or Labor Party is, is certainly saying they're going to spend a lot of money in terms of providing social housing and all the rest of it. And I think that's a really admirable thing to do. Um, how we manage the delivery of that and, and how government doesn't get taken advantage of um, is something that needs to be project managed really, really closely. Now, the capacity to deliver product at the moment, irrespective of who gets in um, power at the moment, is going to be highly constrained by the supply chains that we've got. Um, so the ability to deliver product um, affordably is going to be influenced by world events. So those world events that we're seeing at the moment, uh, you know, we've lifted our interest rates 0.25%, but America continues to lift theirs at a much faster rate, and that is causing the Australian dollar to fall. So our ability then to import products, which a lot of the components that go into our housing um, are, means that the cost of delivering that housing is going to be quite expensive. So the bang for buck that we get, irrespective of who's, which party is in there, is arguably, arguably going to be somewhat reduced because of world events that are that are impacting us now. Um, and it's hard to see a lot of those things um, declining. You know, if you've still got China, which is one of our major supplier of things like ceramics and, um, you know, building materials. I mean, we ship a lot of our um, timber to, a, to China to be um, milled, to have it come back here, you know, to be used in housing. But, you know, if China continues to adopt the policy of having um, um, a zero impact or, or zero COVID, um, and shuts down its its cities and and towns and all the rest of it. Then, the supply of basic housing components is is going to be a really tough one. Um, so the federal election, whilst it can promise a lot of things, its capacity to deliver, certainly in the short term, is going to be somewhat hindered. So, mm. um, so whilst everything might be said in the right way and well intentioned, our capacity to actually make these things happen, as most people cynically kind of think, is probably not not as you would expect. Mm, interesting. Okay. So we've spoken about COVID a couple of times. I really want to get into that around reflecting on COVID and, and what it's done to housing and people moving away from our capital cities to our regional areas 
do you, do you think those trends are likely to continue? And what are your observations about the impact of those trends? Yeah, really good question, Nicole. So there's probably there's probably some misconceptions that go with all of this to start with. So there was the thought originally that um, our regions were experiencing significant um, growth in terms of population movement. And yes, they were, but the, the net population growth was driven um, not so much by the amount of people going to those regions because that number kind of stayed about the same. What happened was that the people that were living in those regions weren't actually moving because when we were in lockdown and you couldn't move interstate and you couldn't, you know, your, your freedom of movement was actually fairly heavily constrained. You know, universities kind of shut down and ran their courses um, differently. So if you think about the education sector as, a, as an area that, you know, generally sees quite a lot of population mobility, you know, like someone from the Sunshine Coast might move to Brisbane, uh, they might move to Sydney or Melbourne um, to study. Um, they were sitting tight because the universities were shut down, uh, courses were delivered online. Uh, so the technology side of things changed the way we did things. Um, so, so that misconception about our regions were growing at a rapid rate, they were kind of growing at a normal rate, but we just weren't seeing the people leave those regions to go somewhere else, which meant that the churn in terms of um, people's occupying property um, was kind of doubled up. So. Um, if I look at the Sunshine Coast as a classic example, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, the vacancy rate for housing up there probably sat somewhere in about that sort of 2 to 3%, maybe a little bit higher in some sectors. Um, it currently sits at about 0.2%. Um, and we're seeing people that, that live there or that used to live there can't live there now. So they're having to move because they, they can't afford the rents uh, that are in there. So the pandemic has changed in terms of the population movement or non-movement, as of both was, um, has changed the way um, those sort of markets have evolved. But if I think about the way it's impacted housing um, and apartments to some extent, so our CBD apartment market uh, is only just starting to recover now, both in terms of price and both in terms of vacancy rates. So we are seeing, I guess, that uh, what was... Um, uh, people leaving the city to go and, and, and rent a house somewhere um, and, and people were certainly working from home, you know, two, three, five days a week. Um, and certainly in lockdown, they were five days a week. Uh, but if we think about, um, we are starting to see a contraction back to the city. So mm. not all cities, um, but we're certainly seeing in, in Brisbane, um, there are more people coming back here, but it doesn't take much of an excuse for people to work from home either. So as we see right now, as we're doing this, there's a heavy rain event um, and the roads are not so busy because people are going, you know what, I'll work from home. I don't have to go into the office today. Now that has changed, I guess, the design and the, the price, I guess, of things. So housing now, as we've discussed earlier on, is, is probably the least affordable that it's ever been in, um, in southeast Queensland, uh, ever is that a is that ever or is that re in recent times? Look, I mean, as far as the data goes, we'd have to be if we're not ever, we've got to be topping out. You know, we've got to be right up there. Yeah. So what? So that's done two things. One, it's made it really expensive to own a house. Um, 
and the housing price has has grown substantially over 50 percent you know sometimes more um, depending in suburbs in, in two years which is just insane um, and certainly unsustainable but the apartment market hasn't grown so all of a sudden the apartment market looks a lot more affordable than what it did pre-pandemic mm. and with a seq regional plan that wants you know 60 percent of the population to live in apartments it's actually made the apartment market a much more viable alternative for people to live in. But the other really good thing about this is because the housing market is so expensive, it means that our developers are now considering the product that they are delivering as being more livable. So we're moving out of that, and we're probably moving out of that investment cycle in 2019 anyway, but it's certainly rushed on through 2021 um, and certainly into 2022, where the capacity to live in a three-bedroom apartment in a nice complex is probably not dissimilar in price to what it would be to have an older three-bedroom home in a middle-ring suburb. Um, and the benefit of that is is that uh, we, we're not solving any affordability problem, but we may be freeing up some housing that wasn't freed up before. Um, and we're actually providing accommodation that is better at delivering longer term outcomes for our community. Um, and it's, you know, our three bedroom apartment product used to be a penthouse. You know, it used to be what sat up on the top and everyone thought it was great. We're now seeing three bedroom apartments on the second floor or the third floor. Um, mm. So we've got product that is actually much more suitable to family living than what we've ever had before. And when we do that, we then have to think about how we retrofit our suburbs to do that. Because if we want a three bedroom apartment to work for a family, which is Southeast Queensland's biggest demographic cohort is realistically that 25 to 44 year old with children. Um, so life stage wise, um, if I would need to attract that demographic, uh, I need to make sure that I've got parks for kids to run around in. I need to make sure there's sports fields. You know, I need to make sure there's safe walking tracks, safe playgrounds, etc. So I think we really need to consider how we deliver our future apartment product into the marketplace um, and where we actually deliver it to make that a, a realistic um, alternative for someone to weigh up whether they want to live in a house or whether they want to live in an apartment. Because apartment living, when it's delivered well, um, probably offers a lot more benefit than what many housing um, options do. And I wonder if that goes into the next question around those longer term trends that we might see, you know, post pandemic, post, you know, federal election, you know, when things sort of start to, to get back to what is a new normal, you know, what do you see those kind of longer term and broader market predictions being? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's times where I've actually thought planning is broken. Um, and in some respects, I've often thought that, you know, when you go and you do your, your town planning course or your urban geography course, and, and we, we talk about the theoretical nature of how cities have evolved, um, and everyone learned that donut theory where we first sort of started. It kind of feels like we're back at the donut theory where all roads lead to a CBD. Um, we played with the concept of satellite cities in the probably 70s and 80s, and we we talked about technology-driven urban centres. I actually think that theory was right. It was just before its time. 
I think we're probably back at that point now where we need to um, think about how we look after our communities and what those long-term trends are. So we know that through the through the pandemic, one of the areas of retail that just went gangbusters was your local centre. Um, yeah. Now, our local centres, because it's such a short-term thing, um, really didn't have time to evolve to meet that space. So there is a lot of evolution that can occur in your local retail centre um, that will support um, technology-driven outcomes. And when I say technology-driven outcomes, I'm, I'm talking more about the people that live around the um, the retail centres in their own right. So they can work they, from home. They died for, you know, there was that period of time where local centres were, were disappearing, the corner Absolutely. stores, and, and they just weren't yep. just being able to compete with those, you know, larger centres than yeah. people would drive to. But as you say, I think that local centre trend you know we all as planners it's good theory you know to have those kind of walkable neighborhoods but we yeah. weren't sort of seeing the economics work for that at a period right. of time but now you're su suggesting it does work and it could work into the future if we supported it i would say more so now than ever uh, yeah. but they need to evolve they can't stay as they are otherwise nothing changes um but you know the the great australian addiction to caffeine is probably one of the things that has made these things more viable. So if you think about um, probably in the 70s and 80s, you know, there was a little deli around the corner, you know, and all of these kind of cute little centres, you know, we had news agencies and all the rest of it. Uh, and no one, you know, if you're having a coffee or whatever, someone came around to your house. No one does that now. Well, they do, but not to the same extent. You know, you go out for a coffee, you meet somewhere. So, you know, the great caffeine addiction has meant that the viability of many of these little centres is actually brought back. And and a lot of people don't want to sit in a big shopping centre. They want to sit in something that's kind of cute and neat and offers something that matches their, uh, their surrounding demographic. Now, one of the things I think we've got to be really, really careful when we talk about how we plan these centres is that we don't get caught in this binary, binary relationship of, of it's either this or it's that. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the things that we are talking about at the moment are a lot more relevant for a white collar worker than they are for a blue collar worker. You know, so whilst I can work at home um, as a white collar property economist, and you know I can do a fair bit of work from there, that option isn't available to me in terms of a blue collar worker. Um, and you know what, a blue collar worker has no real desire to hop on a train and travel to the city, which is where all of our trains go, which is where all of our bus lines go. So I think we need to get better at looking at our industrial nodes. I think we need to get better at looking where um, the blue collar operations take place and work out better ways of providing that demographic with the things that they need. Now, if we do that, then we're going to take a lot of pressure off the existing infrastructure, because if I can catch a bus to work, um, which is, you know, sort of five or 10 kilometres away at an appropriate hour of the morning, given that a lot of these people start at hours that our city workers are just kind of crawling out of bed. Uh, if we can put some of these in place, then we take a lot of cars off the road. Um, you know, we need to look at the efficiencies of delivering these things. Now, that doesn't mean that their town centres are any less relevant than a middle ring, white collar sort of suburbs town centre. Um, 
they're not. I mean, you're still going to have your shops. You're still going to have, you know, they still love having coffee. You know, you've got to have your tavern and all the rest of it. But um, we need to think about how these centres evolve and what they mean to the local community and how they relate to the places that they work if we want these things to be um, more equitable in terms of the delivery, which means that instead of saying no more master plan communities, we need to be looking at how our master master plan communities evolve and what they deliver and how I can have generational growth within these projects, which are often 20, 30 years in duration. So, uh, yeah, so I think if we if we move away from our donut theory that we all learn in, in planning 101 and start to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more demographically driven, um, we're going to create some wonderful living spaces that work sustainably both, you know, in terms of the economic, the social um, and the environment, you know, and really that's, that's, that's the ideal, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, we've got only a couple of minutes left, but I do have one more question for you. Sure. And it's 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 linking back to this podcast and, and why I sort of bring experts together. It's around the next 10 years to the Olympics. And yeah. so I, I'm really keen. I mean, I know we've had that, that beautiful conversation around those longer term projections, but what do you think are the, the key economic barriers, but also the opportunities from your perspective for the Olympics in 10 years' time? You know, what are we going to see in that period as, in terms of barriers and opportunities? And I think sort of raising that awareness around what's coming in that period will hopefully allow us to sort of plan and prepare better. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I would be relatively confident that we will have at least one more cycle between now and when the Olympics is delivered. You know, 10 years of sustained economic growth is highly, highly unlikely. Um, you know, we've got a few bugs that we've got to iron out in terms of the economy. You know, we've got rising interest rates, we've got high inflation, we've got supply chain issues. Um, so I don't know that you'd call them barriers. I suspect they're probably more headwinds and wrinkles that need to be ironed out before we can before we can start from a more sustainable place to have uh, economic growth again. Um, you know, a lot of play, a lot of things are reasonably stressed at the moment. Uh, but I think the next 10 years actually offers some wonderful opportunities for Brisbane, Southeast Queensland, Queensland to a lesser extent, but certainly the Southeast corner will benefit from um, far better infrastructure. Um, you know, there is a commitment by government to do that. Um, you know, I think our, our transport networks will certainly improve. Um, now, some of the planning that we're seeing around um, nodes for um, that will, will certainly make the, the Olympics a better place um, are really legacy things that will work for Brisbane for decades afterwards. So, I mean, when we talk about the next 10 years, realistically, we should be thinking about what the next 30 years looks like. And, and when we look at that 30-year horizon, what do we want to try and invest in in this current 10 years where the purse strings are going to be open that make that 30-year horizon really good? So if I think about my kids, actually, they'll be too old by then, but, you know, maybe it's their kids because, um, you know, 30 years down the track, I suspect that they will have children. So what do we want their children to look like, uh, you know, in terms of the, the city that they're going to grow up in? Um, 
And I think if we adopt the the thought process of of that, you know, is this good for them or not, then we will end up with a better outcome. Uh, I think the problem that we have with with economics is that, and property economics in particular, is that we've moved into a place called the highest and highest use, rather than highest and best use. <laughs> and more I like often, that. yeah, and more often than not, the highest and best use ends up becoming the highest and highest use. But we take such a short-term view of what things are that it is the highest and highest use. Um, so I think the the Olympics allows us to maybe step back a little bit, take that generational sort of view, and 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 take on a highest and best use. Um, and if we do that, I, I think you know Southeast Queensland, by default, with its incredible climate, you know, wonderful city structure. Um, probably is going to elevate it, you know, to, um, you know, the, the standards that we've seen, I guess, Melbourne, you know, which which has won award after award, you know, you know, they're the sort of things that we should be thinking about. How do we actually do that? What do we want our people to live? How do we want them to live? Um, and, and don't worry about the Olympics. That'll take care of itself. But let's use the Olympics as a springboard to make these things, a, you know, a 30-year horizon. I love it. That's awesome and a great place to finish. Thank you so much for your time today, Matt. It's been awesome chatting with you. I've really enjoyed it. That's been fantastic. Thank you very much for the invitation. Not a problem. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.